Good morning. Our scripture passage today is 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Please open your Bibles and read along with me. Again, the passage is 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, EBF. My name is Tim Allen, and I have the privilege of serving here as lead pastor. And we want to extend a special welcome to our Northwestern students as you begin this challenging semester that probably looks very different than you would have expected. But we just want to say welcome back, and uh, we are praying for you. We look forward to partnering with you in the gospel to, to impact Evanston and beyond. Also, we wanted to let you know, uh, you probably saw the communication that went out regarding uh, a staff transition, and uh, that is Rachel Varghese is stepping down in her position as Director of Women's Ministry as she and her family found a home in Bartlett that is closer to her family and also a new ministry position there. We are so grateful for her many years of faithful service, eight years at EBF, five years on staff, and her legacy and impact. I've only heard more and more stories of just the unique impact that she has had on the lives of so many. I know we as a family have certainly felt welcomed by Rachel and her family, and I encourage all of us to be praying for her as she steps into this new role and in this season of transition. We look forward to celebrating her and sending her off as an extension of the kingdom, as an extension of what God is doing in and through EBF. This Sunday marks the start of our fall ministry season, and we're very excited to be ramping back up and particularly for our ethos communities. If you are not plugged into one of those, we highly encourage you to do so. Those are such a vital link for our church and the way that we live out our ethos, who we are and who we desire to become. And so if you're not plugged in there, we, we encourage you to do so. You know, this is a season that probably looks very different than we would anticipate, would have anticipated, but it is ripe with gospel opportunities. I also wanted to give you a preview of uh, what's coming up as far as our upcoming sermon series. We are going to be embarking on a somewhat ambitious series looking at the church in Ephesus. We're going to begin by looking at the birth of the church in Ephesus in Acts 18 through 20, looking at God's gracious gospel. Then we're going to move into the letter to the church in Ephesus, exploring unity in Christ in the book of Ephesians. And then finally, we're going to look at the challenge to the church in Ephesus, found in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7, your first love. And so in anticipation for that, uh, we would just encourage all of us to be reading through Acts 18 through 20, uh, the book of Ephesians, as well as Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. Hey, before we dive into that series, though, we're going to spend some time 
This morning in particular, looking at our ethos statements, looking especially at uh, humble orthodoxy. We firmly hold to the truth while gently and lovingly proclaiming it. Our ethos describes who we are and who we desire to become. We want a certain ethos to shape our church and to shape our surrounding community as well. This is what guides our decisions and our practices, and it is captured in five ethos statements. And I have to just be honest with you, this is a huge part of what attracted me to EBF in the first place. As I read through these various ethos statements and their explanation, I resonated so deeply with humble orthodoxy, abiding worship, missional community, invested sojourners, and pervasive gospel. This is the culture and character of our church. It is the air that we breathe, and it is good for us to be reminded of what we are all about. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Father, we thank you for the beginning of this fall ministry season. We pray especially for Northwestern students, faculty, and staff as they head back and the unique challenges that they face this semester, O oh Lord. Would you grant protection and mercy? Lead students to use this time of preparation to set good and godly habits that will last for a lifetime. Father, we lift up Rachel Varghese and her family to you. We are so grateful for her many years of faithful and fruitful ministry among us. We pray, God, we celebrate her gospel work, all that you have done in and through her. And we pray that you would go before her in this season of transition as she heads out as an extension of your kingdom and what you're doing in and through this church. Lord, would you prepare her, prepare her family as well, and prepare the hearts of those that she will minister to. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and obey what you have to say to us today through your word. May we hear your life-giving gospel afresh. May we hold unswervingly to it. And may we share it with conviction and compassion. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Alienation. Ridicule. Social marginalization and hostility. This is just a fraction of what Christians can experience when they stand up for or do what they know to be right. Maybe your family has turned its back on you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're an employee who risks termination because your company wants you to wear an apron with a rainbow emblem that is attached to it. Maybe you're a student being ridiculed by your peers because of your stance in saving sex for marriage. Many of us struggle with what it means to stand firm in a time when people may increasingly respond to our views of life, of death, of marriage, and of sex with outrage and contempt. How should we respond when we suffer for doing what is right? Where can we look for answers and for hope? This is what we find, this is what we discover in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. And if you haven't already, I invite you to turn with me there. This book, this book of 1 Peter, is all about finding hope amid a broken world. Peter wrote this book to Christians who were scattered over several Roman provinces to remind them of the hope that they are to have as they struggle with what it means to navigate living between two worlds. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12 calls Christians to be a blessing both within the community of faith as well as among the surrounding community as well. 
in the community of faith, we should display unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In the broader community, we should not repay evil for evil, but instead bless, to do good, and to seek peace. Starting in verse 13, then, Peter begins to zero in on how Christians should live and how Christians should respond to suffering for standing up for or doing what is right. And so in our time together this morning, we're going to explore four responses to suffering for doing what is right, with a particular emphasis on humble orthodoxy in verses 15 through 16. So let's dive in, beginning with the first response. First, remember that you are blessed and will not be ultimately harmed. Look at verses 13 and the beginning of 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Verse 13 here isn't saying that no one is going to come after those who are eager to do good. The emphasis is on the harm. No one is going to harm those who are eager to do good. But we might say, now wait a minute. Many Christians have suffered harm all of the time for standing up for doing what is right. But here Paul is using harm in the ultimate sense. Christians who stand for what is right, though they may experience suffering, though they may be maligned and experience abuse, will not be shaken ultimately. Have confidence knowing that Christians will not be harmed ultimately. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Even if someone hurts you or even kills you, they cannot lay a finger on your eternal destiny, on your eternal inheritance in the Lord. The way Peter presents this suffering makes it clear that it is something that his readers may experience at some point. At the time he wrote this, the great persecution under Nero had not yet broken out, but he wanted them to be prepared for whatever they would face. Throughout this letter, Peter addresses suffering in general. But here there is a special category, that is, suffering for doing what is right, suffering for righteousness' sake. In the first century, there was a great amount of confusion surrounding this growing band of Christ followers, who they were, what they were all about. Many Christians faced threats and hostility when they stood up for their newfound faith. Christians today face alienation, alienation, social marginalization, and other, other things when they stand up for doing what is right. At the same time, there are Christians in many parts of the world who experience tremendous suffering as they stand for what is right. Rather than being threatened maybe with the loss of a job or being dismissed as backward, they are being threatened with imprisonment, torture, violence, and even death. I think about our dear friends who are serving the Lord in, in northern Iraq and what they have faced, what they have faced in their lives, not only in families turning their backs on them, but even the imprisonment and the death threats and the bombing attempts and the knife attacks that they have endured because of their faith in Jesus Christ for standing up for doing what is right. They, they inspire me daily and remind me and, and encourage me to press on in my faith and to speak the truth in love. Regardless of the extent of the suffering, Peter emphasizes that those who suffer for doing what is right in the face of opposition are fundamentally blessed. To be blessed here in 1 Peter does not mean to feel happy. No, instead it means to be highly privileged. It is the highest privilege to be sons and daughters of the king. After all, Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
The reality is that if you are a believer, you are going to face pushback. You are going to face opposition. First Timothy reminds us that indeed those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. Here's the second response. Revere Christ as Lord and fear no other. Revere Christ as Lord and fear no other. Look at the rest of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Peter sees Isaiah 8, 12 through 13 as a paradigm for his readers. In the midst of suffering and persecution, do not be afraid of those who seek to harm you. Do not be caught up in their empty threats. Rather, instead, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Instead of fearing those who would seek to harm us, only God should be feared. The positive antidote to fear is to sanctify, that is to to make separate from others, to sanctify Christ as Lord. That means to give Christ the special place that he deserves in our lives. Peter is concerned here about the heart of the matter. Being zealous for what is good flows from a heart that has been profoundly shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Christ, your master. Fear God and fear no other. Fear God by showing him the reverence and awe that is due to him and him alone. And as Peter puts it, revere Christ as Lord. This should give Christians courage as they come under fire fire, and eternal perspective to remain steadfast despite opinion polls and despite social trends. You know, a while back, we took some friends to Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs. And their three-year-old daughter, when she heard the name of the park, said, there is only one God. She practically shouted it. There is only one God. I love that. It's true. God has no rivals. Apparently, she was upset by the name of the park, but God has no rivals. Fear God and fear no other. This is the kind of spiritual backbone that followers of Christ need to have today in a sea of relativism and in a sea of moral ambiguity. People are not God. Only he is God. Let us honor Christ as the Lord, Christ the Lord as holy, and remember that we're not here to please people. As we navigate this world and face opposition, part of the way we honor Christ as holy is by rightly representing him from his word. And so the third response is that we must be ready to share the truth in love. Be ready to share the truth in love. Look at the rest of verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Do you remember the scout motto? That's right, be prepared. Be prepared. Peter encourages his followers, Peter encourages followers of Christ to always be prepared to everyone who asks them to give the reason for the hope that is within them. As we live out the gospel, there are going to be times when we are called into question, asked maybe why we're different or challenged regarding what it is that we believe. This then is the orthodox piece of humble orthodoxy. What does orthodox mean? Let's just pause here for a moment. What does orthodox mean? Unfortunately, it can be a scary word sometimes that conjures up 
images of big, burly books that are good maybe for bicep curls, right? Or maybe we might think of old, dusty, complicated theology. While some might think that orthodoxy is merely theoretical with no relevance to our daily lives. Friends, orthodoxy simply means right opinion. It means getting our beliefs about God right and believing ultimately what the Bible says about who God is and what he has done. It has to do with teaching and beliefs that are based on the established truths of the faith, truths revealed to us in his word. But there's a second piece that's found in this text. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here is the humble piece of humble orthodoxy. This has to do with our disposition, the way that we hold these truths. The reason orthodoxy has so many negative connotations, perhaps, is because of the improper ways that people have held it over the centuries. Here are some examples. Think, for example, of cold orthodoxy. This is holding the truth maybe in a cerebral way that has no bearing on practical living. Or how about narrow orthodoxy? This is holding the truth in a rigid way that makes others feel excluded, perhaps, or condemned. Or sadly, arrogant orthodoxy. This is holding the truth in an unkind, unloving, or self-righteous way. Those that hold to arrogant orthodoxy love rebuking the way that Jesus does, but not how he hung out with sinners. Or to turn it around, what about humble heterodoxy? People who display this are willing to abandon some of the fundamental truths of the Christian faith, but may appear really nice, accepting, and loving. Instead, as Scripture reveals to us, we are called to humble orthodoxy. This means holding firmly to the truth while gently and lovingly proclaiming it. May we be a community that is so gripped by truth, so captivated by the faith, that we shout it for joy and we gently and lovingly share it and communicate it with others. Let us stand under God's word, humble ourselves and view God's word as our authority. Let it have its proper say in our lives and transform us from the inside out. The message that we proclaim is indeed anchored in scripture. Think about that image for a minute here, a sturdy anchor. You know, as an army guy, it kind of pains me to use a nautical example, but I probably need to be stretched. So, so here we go. An anchor is what keeps a vessel from drifting away due to current or wind. It fixes the vessel in a certain position. I think this image is beautifully conveyed in the artwork that we have surrounding our ethos statements. If you look at the image for humble orthodoxy, you see an anchor there. An anchor. It keeps us from being tossed to and fro. It guards us from drifting and slowly and gradually losing our way. This is a risk not only within individual lives, but also in the life of a church as well. If you look at that artwork more closely, though, that image for humble, that represents humble orthodoxy, you see that that anchor is attached to a cross. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that keeps us anchored. We are centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just as the anchor digs in deeper when a boat is pulled away, so we must dig more deeply into the cross. We must dig more deeply into the gospel when we are pulled, when the winds and the waves seek to drive us away. Ephesians 4 verses 14 through 15 says this, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, there it is, humble orthodoxy. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. The truth that we adhere to is summarized so beautifully in the statement of faith that we hold as a church. We belong to a family of churches called the Evangelical Free Church of America. And that statement of faith does a fine job of expressing our orthodox beliefs concerning God, the Bible, the human condition, Jesus Christ, the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the church, Christian living, Christian living, Christ's return, and our response and eternal destiny. I encourage all of us to re-familiarize ourselves with our statement of faith. Let's read it, reread it, and be reminded of the depth of what is represented in, its, in those words. You can find it at ebfchurch.org slash about slash statement of faith. And it really is this statement of faith that is what is to unite us as believers in Jesus Christ. Think about three expanding concentric circles for a minute. Three circles. And each one of those corresponds to essentials, convictions, and preferences. Essentials, convictions, and preferences. When we talk about our beliefs that are captured in our statement of faith, we hold those in the category of essentials. We believe those are, those are essentials to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then moving out from there, we come to the realm of conviction. This may be our beliefs on uh, baptism, our beliefs on the Lord's Supper, or other things like that. These are still firmly held convictions, but not those hills that we are willing to die on. And then lastly is preferences. This may be more stylistic. This may be more of how we prefer to worship or how we prefer to connect with God, whatever the case may be. But I just want to help us rightly orient ourselves as we think about our statement of faith. These are the essentials. These are what we hold dear. May we be united as a church in the essentials of the faith. You know, there's a there's a wonderful, wonderful resource that I recommend to you called Evangelical Convictions. And don't be thrown off by the title. I wish it said Evangelical Essentials, but I digress. Evangelical Convictions. This is a, a book-length treatment of the statement of faith of the EFCA. And if you have not read through this, I highly recommend it. Each chapter takes one of our paragraphs of the statement of faith and goes in much more depth, explaining some of the background, the fundamental moorings that are found in scripture, and also practical ramifications as well. I, I commend it to you. Our statement of faith, I believe, is, is thoroughly biblical. It is so, it fl- follows a, a biblical theology flow. It begins with God and it ends to the glory of God. As with many things, though, that are held in tension, there is a danger in tipping more in one direction or the other. Think for a minute here about horseback riding. Picture one stirrup as representing humble and the other stirrup as representing orthodoxy. Or as Ephesians 4 puts it, uh, love and truth. It's so easy to fall off on one side of the horse or the other, but we need both. We need to be anchored in both. Those who are stronger in humility but struggle in orthodoxy may be tempted to water down the gospel or wiggle out of opportunities to speak the truth in love. Those who are stronger in orthodoxy but struggle with humility might be more interested in winning an argument 
and may show less concern or care for the individual, for the person. Indeed, we need to stay upright in the saddle and maintain both humility and orthodoxy. I love how John Stott puts it here in reflecting upon Ephesians 4 in particular. He says, Thank God there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But sometimes they are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch. Their muscles ripple and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Others make the opposite mistake. They are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love, but in order to do so are prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of revelation. Both Both these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold the the two together, which should not be difficult for spirit-filled believers since the Holy Spirit is himself the spirit of truth and his first fruit is love. There is no other route than this to a fully mature Christian unity. I love that quote. I love that quote, especially about the part of the truth becoming hard if if it is not softened by love and love becoming soft if it is not strengthened by truth. So it begs the question then, How do we cultivate humble orthodoxy, not only within our lives, but also in the life of the church? Dear church, I believe it involves knowing the word, seriously studying the word, and growing in our understanding of who God is and what he has done. It means reading the Bible, praying, engaging in the spiritual discipline, studying the real deal so that we can spot counterfeits when they come come our way. Let's not be slackers when it comes to the study of God's word. Let's also not be suckers when confronted by things that are anti-gospel. Let's not be easily duped or blown to and fro by things like conspiracy theories or false gospels or doctrinal heresies or the cultural waves that, that flow. We need to be ready to make a defense and to speak the truth in love. But instead of going off on people or just trying to win an argument, we must share the truth in a winsome way allowing the only offense that occurs to be not because of our disposition, not because of the way we communicate the truth, but because of the very cross itself. May the cross be what offends people. And may we allow the Holy Spirit to do the convicting work that only he can do. Let us listen to the whole person, empathize, and remember that we are representing God's truth, not mere human opinion. Let us be willing to share the hope that is in us. This hope that is deeply personal. Did you notice that in the text? It said the hope that is in you. This is a hope that has forever changed my life. I hope that it has changed yours. And may this same hope be what is not only on our hearts, but is on our lips as well. What are some of the ways we can cultivate humble orthodoxy corporately? Well, first, we need to remember that this is also a communal task. Ephesians 4 speaks to this. Christ is the head of the church, and he has provided spiritual gifts to each member to build up the body. Each of us as a member has a role to play in preserving and cultivating humble orthodoxy. Christ has also given leadership roles within the church. They're like personal trainers to the body, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to teach rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness, and to teach sound doctrine and guard against false doctrine. It is vitally important that we as leaders watch over, equip, 
teach, guard, and pray for the flock that God has entrusted to our care. Let us also study God's word together in community with one another and speak the truth and love to one another. I can't stress our ethos communities enough because that is a perfect place to do just that, to study the word in community with one another and to speak the truth in love to one another. Let us be willing to lovingly confront when we see sisters or brothers that are straying from the truth. And let us remain united in the essentials of the faith while leaving room in the realm of conviction and preference. It is a beautiful thing when people of different cultures and backgrounds are united in what we believe, are united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us know what we believe, why we believe it, and help one another work that truth into our lives. And let us show humility toward one another, especially in matters of conviction and preference. Randy Alcorn wrote a great book on this very topic. It's the the Grace and Truth Paradox. But he writes, Truth without grace breeds a self-righteous legalism that poisons the church and pushes the world away from Christ. Grace without truth breeds moral indifference and keeps people from seeing their need for Christ. Attempts to soften the gospel by minimizing truth keep people from Jesus. Attempts to toughen the gospel by minimizing grace keep people from Jesus. It is not enough for us to offer grace or truth. We must offer both. Amen to that. Amen to that. What Peter does, though, is he goes on to say in verse 16, having a clear conscience. Having a clear conscience. If we are going to speak the truth in love, we need to have a clear conscience and be people of integrity before God. We can't faithfully explain the hope that is in us if we are living in a way that completely contradicts that hope. Ultimately, our conscience remains clear if we stand up for what is right. Even if we face hostility and threats, we can rest knowing that we follow the ultimate example of Christ. The purpose then Peter shares in verse 16 is so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When we think of being ashamed, we might think of the emotional feeling of embarrassment or guilt. But the Old Testament actually speaks of shame in in the sense of social status, often referring to utter defeat in battle. Scripture says that those who follow God in the end will not be put to shame, but their opponents will be. If we keep a clear conscience, then accusations against us may prove to be groundless, and our accusers will be put to shame, be be it in this life, or the life to come. Here's the fourth response when suffering for doing what is right. The fourth one is to rest in God's perfect will. Rest in God's perfect will. Look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter comes back to his earlier point and closes this section with the fundamental truth that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Suffering can occur because of poor decisions that we make. It can occur because of the brokenness, generally because of the brokenness and decay in this world. But what Peter mainly has in view here is suffering for doing something that is honoring to God. He interjects a key phrase in this verse, if it is God's will. The point of this is not that God wills suffering, but that he wills doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong, even if suffering is the result. Peter's encouragement is that we can rest knowing that suffering is within God's 
sovereign control. It is within God's purview. He reminds us that even if we face suffering, it is only for a little while, as he says in chapter 1, and afterwards God will restore and strengthen, as he says in chapter 5, verse 10. So church, when we suffer for doing what is right, let us remember that we are blessed and will not be ultimately harmed. Let us revere Christ as Lord and fear no other. Let us be ready to share the truth in love, humble orthodoxy. And let us rest in God's perfect will. Rest in God's perfect will. Let us, O church, look to Jesus, who is the ultimate example of humble orthodoxy. John 1.14, perhaps one of the most power-packed verses in all of Scripture, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of both grace and truth. He is not 50% grace and 50% truth. No, he is 100% grace and 100% truth. May we look to him as the ultimate example and the perfect embodiment of grace and truth. We see this displayed in Christ's life again and again. And it is actually at the cross that we then see the ultimate expression of grace and truth. The ultimate expression of grace and truth. I thought, again, Randy Alcorn put it so well in his book. He says this, Grace isn't about God lowering his standards. It's about God fulfilling those standards through the substitutionary suffering of the standard setter. Christ went to the cross because he would not ignore the truths of his holiness and our sin. Grace never ignores or violates truth. Grace gave what truth demanded, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Amen, church? Amen. Let us commit ourselves through God's strength to cultivate humble orthodoxy in our lives and in our church, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your Son, the perfect embodiment of grace and truth. We ask for wisdom to boldly speak the truth and to do so in a loving and winsome way. Forgive us, O Lord, for the times that we have been harsh and unloving. Forgive us for the times that we have missed gospel opportunities. Forgive us, Lord, for those times that we have compromised the truth of your word. O Lord, keep us dedicated to the task of, of humble orthodoxy. And keep us committed as a church to remaining anchored in your great gospel. May we look to the cross as the ultimate expression of grace and truth. And may we seek, O Lord, to engage Evanston and beyond with the transformational power of the gospel in lives that are given to both grace and truth. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.